Section 20 of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book 4, Chapter 7. Decision of the Combat. No battle is decided in a single moment, although in every battle there arise moments of crisis on which the result depends. The loss of a battle is, therefore, a gradual falling off the scale, but there is in every combat a point of time when it may be regarded as decided, in such a way that the renewal of the fight would be a new battle, not a continuation of the old one. To have a clear notion on this point of time is very important in order to be able to decide whether, with the prompt assistance of reinforcements, the combat can again be resumed with advantage. Often in combats which are beyond restoration, new forces are sacrificed in vain. Often through neglect, the decision has not been seized when it might easily have been secured. Here are two examples which could not be more to the point. When the Prince of Hohenlohe in 1806 at Jena, with 35,000 men, opposed to from 60,000 to 70,000 under Bonaparte, had accepted battle and lost it, but lost it in such a way that the 35,000 may be regarded as dissolved, General Ruschel undertook to renew the fight with about 12,000. The consequence was that, in a moment, his force was scattered in like manner. On the other hand, on the same day at Auerstadt, the Prussians maintained a combat with 25,000 against Davoust, who had 28,000, until midday, without success, it is true, but still without the force being reduced to a state of dissolution, without even greater loss than the enemy, who was very deficient in cavalry. But they neglected to use the reserve of 18,000 under General Calcruth to restore the battle which, under these circumstances, it would have been impossible to lose. Each combat is a whole in which the partial combats combine themselves into one total result. In this total result lies the decision of the combat. This success need not be exactly a victory such as we have denoted in the sixth chapter, for often the preparations for that have not been made. Often there is no opportunity if the enemy gives way too soon, and in most cases the decision, even when the resistance has been obstinate, takes place before such a degree of success is attained as would completely satisfy the idea of victory. We therefore ask, which is commonly the moment of the decision? That is to say, the moment when a fresh, effective, of course not disproportionate, force can no longer turn a disadvantageous battle. If we pass over false attacks, which in accordance with their nature are properly without decision, then, one, if the possession of a movable object was the object of the combat, the loss of the same is always the decision. Two, if the possession of ground was the object of the combat, then the decision generally lies in its loss. Still not always. Only if this ground is of peculiar strength, ground which is easy to pass over, however important it may be in other respects, cannot be retaken without much danger. 3. But in all cases, where these two circumstances have not already decided the combat, therefore, particularly in case the destruction of the enemy's force is the principal object, the decision is reached at the moment when the conqueror ceases to feel himself in a state of disintegration, that is, of unserviceableness to a certain extent. When, therefore, 
there is no advantage in using the successive efforts spoken of in the twelfth chapter of the third book on this ground we have given the strategic unity of the battle its place here a battle therefore in which the assailant has not lost his condition of order and perfect efficiency at all or at least only in a small part of his force whilst the opposing forces are more or less disorganized throughout is only not to be retrieved and just as little if the enemy has recovered his inefficiency the smaller therefore that part of a force is which has really been engaged the greater that portion which as a reserve has contributed to the result only by its presence so much the less will any new force of the enemy wrest again the victory from our hands and that commander who carries out to the furthest with his army the principle of conducting the combat with the greatest economy of forces and making the most of the moral effect of strong reserves goes the surest way to victory we must allow that the french in modern times especially when led by bonaparte have shown a thorough mastery in this further the moment when the crisis stage of the combat ceases with the conqueror and his original state of order is restored takes place sooner the smaller the unit he controls a picket of cavalry pursuing an enemy at full gallop will in a few moments resume its proper order and the crisis ceases a whole regiment of cavalry requires a longer time it lasts still longer with infantry if extended in single lines of skirmishes and longer again with divisions of all three arms when it happens by chance that one part has taken one direction and another part another direction and the combat has therefore caused a loss of the order of formulation which usually becomes still worse from not knowing exactly where the other is thus therefore the point of time when the conqueror has collected the instruments he has been using and which are mixed up and partly out of order the moment when he has in some measure rearranged them and put them in their proper places and thus brought the battle workshop into a little order this moment we say is always later the greater the total force again this moment comes later if night overtakes the conqueror in the crisis and lastly it comes later still if the country is broken and thickly wooded but with regard to these two points we must observe that night is also a great means of protection and it is only seldom that circumstances favour the expectation of a successful result from a night attack as on march tenth eighteen fourteen at Lyon, where york against marmont gives us an example completely in place here in the same way a wooded and broken country will afford protection against the reaction of those who are engaged in the long crisis of victory both therefore the night as well as the wooded and broken country are obstacles which make the renewal of the same battle more difficult instead of facilitating it hitherto we have considered assistance arriving for the losing side as a mere increase of force therefore as a reinforcement coming up directly from the rear which is the most usual case but the case is quite different if these fresh forces come upon the enemy in flank or rear on the effect of flank or rear tactics so far as they belong to strategy we shall speak in another place such a one as we have here in view intended for the restoration of the combat belongs chiefly to tactics and is only mentioned because we are here speaking of tactical results our ideas therefore must stretch upon the province of tactics by directing a force against the enemy's flank and rear its efficiency may be much intensified but this is so far from being a necessary result always that the efficiency may on the other hand be just as much weakened 
the circumstances under which the combat has taken place decide upon this part of the plan as well as upon every other without our being able to enter upon here but at the same time there are two things of importance for our subject first flank and rear attacks have as a rule a more favourable effect on the consequences of the decision than upon the decision itself now as concerns the retrieving a battle the first thing to be arrived at above all is a favourable decision and not magnitude of success in this view one would therefore think that a force which comes to re-establish our combat is of less assistance if it falls upon the enemy in flank and rear therefore separated from us than if it joins itself to us directly certainly cases are not wanting where it is so but we must say that the majority are on the other side and they are so on account of the second point which is here important to us this second point is the moral effect of the surprise which as a rule a reinforcement coming up to re-establish combat has generally in its favour now the effect of a surprise is always heightened if it takes place in the flank or rear and an enemy completely engaged in the crisis of victory in his extended and scattered order is less in a state to counteract it who does not feel that an attack in flank or rear which at the commencement of the battle when forces are concentrated and prepared for such an event would be of little importance gains quite another weight in the last moment of the combat we must therefore at once admit that in most cases a reinforcement coming up on the flank or rear of the enemy will be more efficacious will be like the same weight at the end of a longer lever and therefore that under these circumstances we may undertake to restore the battle with the same force which employed in a direct attack would be quite insufficient here results almost defy calculation because the moral forces gain completely the ascendancy this is therefore the right field for boldness and daring the eye must therefore be directed on all these objects all these moments of cooperating forces must be taken into consideration when we have to decide in doubtful cases whether or not it is still possible to restore a combat which has taken an unfavourable turn if the combat is to be regarded as not yet ended then the new contest which is opened by the arrival of assistance fuses into the former therefore they flow together into one common result and the first disadvantage vanishes completely out of the calculation but this is not the case if the combat was already decided then there are two results separate from each other now if the assistance which arrives is only of a relative strength that is if it is not in itself alone a match for the enemy then a favourable result is hardly to be expected from this second combat but if it is so strong that it can undertake the second combat without regard to the first then it may be able by a favourable issue to compensate or even overbalance the first combat but never to make it disappear altogether from the account at the battle of kunersdorf frederick the great at the first onset carried the left of the russian position and took seventy pieces of artillery at the end of the battle both were lost again and the whole result of the first combat was wiped out of the account had it been possible to stop at the first success and to put off the second part of the battle to the coming day then even if the king had lost it the advantages of the first would always have been a set-off to the second 
but when a battle proceeding disadvantageously is arrested and turned before its conclusion its minus result on our side not only disappears from the account but also becomes the foundation of a greater victory if for instance we picture to ourselves exactly the tactical course of the battle we may easily see that until it is finally concluded all successes in partial combats are only decisions in suspense which by the capital decision may not only be destroyed but changed into the opposite the more our forces have suffered the more the enemy will have expended on his side the greater therefore will be the crisis for the enemy and the more the superiority of our fresh troops will tell if now the total result turns in our favour if we wrest from the enemy the field of battle and recover all the trophies again then all the forces which he has sacrificed in obtaining them become sheer gain for us and our former defeat becomes a stepping-stone to a greater triumph the most brilliant feats which with victory the enemy would have so highly prized that the loss of forces which they cost would have been disregarded leave nothing now behind but regret at the sacrifice entailed such is the alteration which the magic of victory and the curse of defeat produces in the specific weight of the same elements therefore even if we are decidedly superior in strength and are able to repay the enemy his victory by a greater still it is always better to forestall the conclusion of a disadvantageous combat if it is of proportionate importance so as to turn its course rather than to deliver a second battle field marshal down attempted in the year seventeen sixty to come to the assistance of general laden at lignitz whilst the battle lasted but when he failed he did not attack the king the next day although he did not want for the means to do so for these reasons serious combats of advanced guards which precede a battle are to be looked upon only as necessary evils and when not necessary they are to be avoided we have still another conclusion to examine if on a regular pitched battle the decision has gone against one this does not constitute a motive for determining on a new one the determination for this new one must proceed from other relations this conclusion however is opposed by a moral force which we must take into account it is the feeling of rage and revenge from the oldest field marshal to the youngest drummer boy this feeling is general and therefore troops are never in better spirits for fighting than when they have to wipe out a stain this is however only on the supposition that the beaten portion is not too great in proportion to the whole because otherwise the above feeling is lost in that of powerlessness there is therefore a very natural tendency to use this moral force to repair the disaster on the spot and on that account chiefly to seek another battle if other circumstances permit it then lies in the nature of the case that this second battle must be an offensive one in the catalogue of battles of second-rate importance there are many examples to be found of such retaliatory battles but great battles have generally too many other determining causes to be brought on by this weaker motive such a feeling must undoubtedly have led the noble blucher with his third corps to the field of battle on february the fourteenth eighteen fourteen when the other two had been beaten three days before at montmirail had he known that he would have come upon bonaparte in person then naturally preponderating reasons would have determined him to put off his revenge to another day but 
he hoped to revenge himself on marmont and instead of gaining the reward of his desire for honourable satisfaction he suffered the penalty for his erroneous calculation on the duration of the combat and the movement of its decision depend the distances from each other at which those masses should be placed which are intended to fight in conjunction with each other this disposition would be a tactical arrangement in so far as it relates to one and the same battle it can however be regarded as such provided the position of the troops is so compact that the two separate combats cannot be imagined and consequently that the space which the whole occupies can be regarded strategically as a mere point but in war cases frequently occur where even those forces intended to fight in unison must be so far separated from each other that while their union for one common combat certainly remains the principal object still the occurrence of separate combats remains possible such a disposition is therefore strategic dispositions of this kind are marches in separate masses and columns the formation of advanced guards and flanking columns also the grouping of reserves intended to serve as supports for more than one strategic point the concentration of several corps from widely extended cantonments and such and such we can see that the necessity for these arrangements may constantly arise and may consider them something like the small change in the strategic economy whilst the capital battles and all that rank with them are the gold and silver pieces chapter eight mutual understanding as to a battle no battle can take place unless by mutual consent and in this idea which constitutes the whole basis of a duel is the root of a certain phraseology used by historical writers which leads to many indefinite and false conceptions according to the view of the writers to whom we refer it has frequently happened that one commander has offered battle to the other and the latter has not accepted it but the battle is a very modified duel and its foundation is not merely in the mutual wish to fight that is in consent but in the objects which are bound up with the battle these belong always to a greater whole and that so much more as even the whole war considered as a combat unit has political objectives and conditions which belong to a higher standpoint the mere desire to conquer each other therefore falls into quite a subordinate relation or rather it ceases completely to be anything of itself and only becomes the nerve which conveys the impulse of action from the higher will amongst the ancients and then again during the early period of standing armies the expression that we had offered battle to the enemy in vain had more sense in it than it has now by the ancients everything was constituted with a view to measuring each other's strength in the open field free from anything in the nature of a hindrance and the whole art of war consisted in the organization and formation of the army that is in the order of battle now as their armies regularly entrenched themselves in their camps therefore the position in the camp was regarded as something unassailable and a battle did not become possible until the enemy left his camp and placed himself in a practicable country as it were entered the lists if therefore we hear about hannibal having offered battle to fabius in vain that tells us nothing more as regards the latter than that a battle was not part of his plan and in itself neither proves the physical nor moral superiority of hannibal but with respect to him the expression is still correct enough in the sense that hannibal really wished a battle in the early period of modern armies the relations were similar in great combats and battles 
that is to say, great masses were brought into action, and managed throughout it by means of an order of battle, which, like a great helpless whole, required a more or less level plain, and was neither suited to attack, nor yet to defence, in a broken, close, or even mountainous country. The defender, therefore, had here also, to some extent, the means of avoiding battle. These relations, although gradually becoming modified, continued until the First Silesian War, and it was not until the Seven Years' War that attacks on an enemy posted in a difficult country gradually became feasible and of ordinary occurrence. Ground did not certainly cease to be a principle of strength to those making use of its aid, but it was no longer a charmed circle which shut out the natural forces of war. During the past thirty years, war has perfected itself much more in this respect, and there is no longer anything which stands in the way of a general who is in earnest about a decision by means of battle. He can seek out his enemy and attack him. If he does not do so, he cannot take credit for having wished to fight, and the expression he offered a battle which his opponent did not accept, therefore now means nothing more than that he did not find circumstances advantageous enough for a battle an admission which the above expression does not suit, but which it only strives to throw a veil over. It is true the defensive side can no longer refuse a battle, yet he may still avoid it by giving up his position, and the role with which that position was connected. This is, however, half a victory for the offensive side, and an acknowledgment of his superiority for the present. This idea, in connection with the cartel of defiance, can therefore no longer be made use of, in order of such rhodomontade to qualify the inaction of him whose part it is to advance, that is, the offensive. The defender, who as long as he does not give way, must have the credit of willing the battle, may certainly say he has offered it if he is not attacked, if that is not understood of itself. But on the other hand, he who now wishes to, and can retreat, cannot easily be forced to give battle. Now, as the advantages to the aggressor from this retreat are often not sufficient, and a substantial victory is a matter of urgent necessity for him, in that way the few means which there are to compel such an opponent also to give battle are often sought for, and applied with particular skill. The principal means for this are, first, surrounding the enemy so as to make his retreat impossible, or at least so difficult that it is better for him to accept battle, and secondly, surprising him. This last way, for which there was a motive formerly in the extreme difficulty of all movements, has become in modern times very inefficacious. From the pliability and manoeuvring capabilities of troops in the present day, one does not hesitate to commence a retreat, even in sight of the enemy, and only some special obstacles in the nature of the country can cause serious difficulties in the operation. As an example of this kind, the Battle of Neresheim may be given. Fought by the Archduke Charles with Moreau in the Rhône Alp, August 11th, 1796, merely with a view to facilitate his retreat, although we freely confess we have never been able quite to understand the argument of the renowned general and author himself in this case. The Battle of Rosbach is another example if we suppose the commander of the Allied army had not really the intention of attacking Frederick the Great. Of the Battle of Saw, the king himself says that it was only fought because a retreat in the presence of the enemy appeared to him a critical operation. At the same time, the king has also given other reasons for the battle. 
on the whole regular night surprises excepted such cases will always be of rare occurrence and those in which an enemy is compelled to fight by being practically surrounded will happen mostly to a single corps only like mortimer's at durenstein eighteen o nine and van damme at kulm eighteen thirteen chapter nine the battle its decision what is a battle a conflict of the main body but not an unimportant one about a secondary object not a mere attempt which is given up when we see betimes that our object is hardly within our reach it is a conflict waged with all our forces for the attainment of a decisive victory minor objects may also be mixed up with the principal object and it will take many different tones of colour from the circumstances out of which it originates for a battle belongs also to a greater whole of which it is only a part but because the essence of war is conflict and the battle is the conflict of the main armies it is always to be regarded as the real centre of gravity of the war and therefore its distinguishing character is that unlike all other encounters it is arranged for and undertaken with the sole purpose of obtaining a decisive victory this has an influence on the manner of its decision on the effect of the victory contained in it and determines the value which theory is to assign to it as a means to an end on that account we make it the subject of our special consideration and at this stage before we enter upon the special ends which may be bound up with it but which do not essentially alter its character if it really deserves to be termed a battle if a battle takes place principally on its own account the elements of its decision must be contained in itself in other words victory must be striven for as long as a possibility or hope remains it must not therefore be given up on account of secondary circumstances but only and alone in the event of the forces appearing completely insufficient now how is that precise moment to be described if a certain artificial formation and cohesion of an army is the principal condition under which the bravery of the troops can gain a victory as was the case during a great part of the period of the modern art of war then the breaking up of this formation is the decision a beaten wing which is put out of joint decides the fate of all that was connected with it if as was the case at another time the essence of the defence consists in an intimate alliance of the army with the ground on which it fights and its obstacles so the army and position are only one then the conquest of an essential point in this position is the decision it is said that the key of the position is lost it cannot therefore be defended any further the battle cannot be continued in both cases the beaten armies are very much like the broken strings of an instrument which cannot do their work that geometrical as well as this geographical principle which had a tendency to place an army in a state of crystallizing tension which did not allow of the available powers being made use of up to the last man have at least so far lost their influence that they no longer predominate armies are still led into battle in a certain order but that order is no longer of decisive importance obstacles of ground are also still turned to account to strengthen a position but they are no longer the only support we attempted in the second chapter of this book to take a general view of the nature of the modern battle according to our conception of it the order of battle is only a disposition of the forces suitable to the convenient use of them and the course of the battle 
a mutual slow wearing away of these forces upon one another to see which will have soonest exhausted his adversary the resolution therefore to give up the fight arises in a battle more than in any other combat from the relation of the fresh reserves remaining available for only these still retain all their moral vigour and the cinders of the battered knocked-about battalions already burnt out in the destroying element must not be placed on a level with them also lost ground as we have elsewhere said is a standard of lost moral force it therefore comes also into account but more as a sign of loss suffered than for the loss itself and the number of fresh reserves is always the chief point to be looked at by both commanders in general an action inclines in one direction from the very commencement but in a manner little observable this direction is also frequently given in a very decided manner by the arrangements which have been made previously and then it shows a want of discernment in that general who commences battle under these unfavourable circumstances without being aware of them even when this does not occur it lies in the nature of things that the course of battle resembles rather a slow disturbance of equilibrium which commences soon but as we have said almost imperceptibly at first and then with each moment of time becomes stronger and more visible than an oscillating to and fro as those who are misled by mendacious descriptions usually suppose but whether it happens that the balance is for a long time little disturbed or that even after it has been lost on one side it rights itself again and is then lost on the other side it is certain at all events that in most instances the defeated general foresees his fate long before he retreats and that cases in which some critical event acts with unexpected force upon the course of the whole have their existence mostly in the colouring with which every one depicts his lost battle we can only here appeal to the decision of unprejudiced men of experience who will we are sure assent to what we have said and answer for us to such of our readers as do not know war from their own experience to develop the necessity of this course from the nature of the thing would lead us too far into the province of tactics to which this branch of the subject belongs we are here only concerned with its results if we say that the defeated general foresees the unfavourable result usually some time before he makes up his mind to give up the battle we admit that there are also instances to the contrary because otherwise we should maintain a proposition contradictory to itself if at the moment of each decisive tendency of battle it should be considered as lost then also no further forces should be used to give it a turn and consequently this decisive tendency could not precede the retreat by any length of time certainly there are instances of battles which after having taken a decided turn to one side have still ended in favour of the other but they are rare not usual these exceptional cases however are reckoned upon by every general against whom fortune declares itself and he must reckon upon them as long as there remains a possibility of a turn of fortune he hopes by stronger efforts by raising the remaining moral forces by surpassing himself or also by some fortunate chance that the next moment will bring a change and pursues this as far as his courage and his judgment can agree we shall have something more to say on this subject but before that we must show what are the signs of the scales turning the result of the whole combat consists in the sum total of the results of all partial combats but these results of separate combats are settled by different considerations first by the pure moral power in the mind of the leading officers 
if a general of division has seen his battalions forced to succumb it will have an influence on his demeanour and his reports and these again will have an influence on the measures of the commander-in-chief therefore even those unsuccessful partial combats which to all appearance are retrieved are not lost in their results and the impressions from them sum themselves up in the mind of the commander without much trouble and even against his will secondly by the quicker melting away of our troops which can be easily estimated in the slow and relatively little tumultuary course of our battles third by lost ground all these things serve for the eye of the general as a compass to tell the course of the battle in which he is embarked if whole batteries have been lost and none of the enemies taken if battalions have been overthrown by the enemy's cavalry whilst those of the enemy everywhere present impenetrable masses if the line of fire from his order of battle wavers involuntarily from one point to another if fruitless efforts have been made to gain certain points and the assaulting battalions each time been scattered by well-directed volleys of grape and case if our artillery begins to reply feebly to that of the enemy if the battalions under fire diminish unusually fast because with the wounded crowds of unwounded men go to the rear if single divisions have been cut off and made prisoners through the disruption of the plan of battle if the line of retreat begins to be endangered the commander may tell very well in which direction he is going with his battle the longer this direction continues the more decided it becomes so much the more difficult will be the turning so much the nearer the moment when he must give up the battle we shall now make some observations on this moment we have already said more than once that the final decision is ruled mostly by the relative number of fresh reserves remaining at the last that commander who sees his adversary is decidedly superior to him in this respect makes up his mind to retreat it is the characteristic of modern battles that all mischances and losses which take place in the course of the same can be retrieved by fresh forces because the arrangement of the modern order of battle and the way in which troops are brought into action allow of their use almost generally and in each position so long therefore as that commander against whom the issue seems to declare itself still retains a superiority in reserve force he will not give up the day but from the moment that his reserves begin to become weaker than his enemies the decision may be regarded as settled and what he now does depends partly on special circumstances partly on the degree of courage and perseverance which he personally possesses and which may degenerate into foolish obstinacy how a commander can attain to the power of estimating correctly the still remaining reserves on both sides is an affair of skilful practical genius which does not in any way belong to this place we keep ourselves to the result as it forms itself in his mind but this conclusion is still not the moment of decision properly for a motive which only arises gradually does not answer to that but is only a general motive towards resolution and the resolution itself requires still some special immediate causes of these there are two chief ones which constantly recur that is the danger of retreat and the arrival of night if the retreat with every new step which the battle takes in its course becomes constantly in greater danger and if the reserves are so much diminished that they are no longer adequate to get breathing room then there is nothing left but to submit to fate and by a well-conducted retreat to save what by a longer delay ending in flight and disaster 
would be lost. But night, as a rule, puts an end to all battles, because a night combat holds out no hope of advantage except under particular circumstances, and as night is better suited for a retreat than the day, so therefore the commander who must look at the retreat as a thing inevitable, or as most probable, will prefer to make use of the night for his purpose. That there are, besides the above two usual and chief causes, yet many others also, which are less or more individual and not to be overlooked, is a matter of course. For the more a battle tends toward a complete upset of the equilibrium, the more sensible is the influence of each partial result in hastening the turn. Thus the loss of a battery, a successful charge of a couple of regiments of cavalry, may call into life the resolution to retreat already ripening. As a conclusion to this subject, we must dwell for a moment on the point at which the courage of the commander engages in a sort of conflict with his reason. If, on the one hand, the overbearing pride of a victorious conqueror, if the inflexible will of a naturally obstinate spirit, if the strenuous resistance of noble feelings will not yield the battlefield where they must leave their honour, yet, on the other hand, reason counsels not to give up everything, not to risk the last upon the game, but to retain as much over as is necessary for an orderly retreat. However highly we must esteem courage and firmness in war, and however little prospect there is of victory to him who cannot resolve to seek it by the exertion of all his power, still there is a point beyond which perseverance can only be termed desperate folly, and therefore can meet with no approbation from any critic. In the most celebrated of all battles, that of Belle Alliance, Bonaparte used his last reserve in an effort to retrieve a battle which was past being retrieved. He spent his last farthing, and then, as a beggar, abandoned both the battlefield and his crown. Chapter 10. Effects of Victory. Continuation. According to the point from which our view is taken, we may feel as much astonished at the extraordinary results of some great battles as to the want of results in others. We shall dwell for a moment on the nature of the effect of a great victory. Three things may easily be distinguished here. The effect upon the instrument itself, that is, upon the generals and their armies, the effect upon the states interested in the war, and the particular result of these effects as manifested in the subsequent course of the campaign. If we only think of the trifling difference which there usually is between victor and vanquished in killed, wounded, prisoners, and artillery lost on the field of battle itself, the consequences which are developed out of this insignificant point seem often quite incomprehensible, and yet, usually, everything only happens quite naturally. We have already said in the seventh chapter that the magnitude of a victory increases not merely in the same measure as the vanquished forces increase in number, but in a higher ratio. The moral effects resulting from the issue of a great battle are greater on the side of the conquered than on that of the conqueror. They lead to greater losses in physical force, which then, in turn, react on the moral element, and so they go on mutually supporting and intensifying each other. On this moral effect we must therefore lay special weight. It takes an opposite direction on the one side from that on the other. As it undermines the energies of the conquered, so it elevates the powers and energy of the conqueror. But its chief effect is upon the vanquished, because here it is the direct cause of fresh losses, and because it is homogeneous in nature with danger, with the fatigues, the hardships, and 
generally with all those embarrassing circumstances by which war is surrounded therefore enters into league with them and increases by their help whilst with the conqueror all these things are like weights which give a higher swing to his courage it is therefore found that the vanquished sinks much further below the original line of equilibrium than the conqueror raises himself above it on this account if we speak of the effects of victory we allude more particularly to those which manifest themselves in the army if this effect is more powerful in an important combat than in a smaller one so again it is much more powerful in a great battle than in a minor one the great battle takes place for the sake of itself for the sake of the victory which it is to give and which is sought for with the utmost effort here on this spot in this very hour to conquer the enemy is the purpose in which the plan of the war with all its threads converges in which all distant hopes all dim glimmerings of future meet fate steps in before us to give an answer to the bold question this is the state of mental tension not only of the commander but of his whole army down to the lowest wagon driver no doubt in decreasing strength but also in decreasing importance according to the nature of the thing a great battle has never at any time been an unprepared unexpected blind routine service but a grand act which partly of itself and partly from the aim of the commander stands out from among the mass of ordinary efforts sufficient to raise the tension of all minds to a higher degree but the higher this tension with respect to the issue the more powerful must be the effect of that issue again the moral effect of victory in our battles is greater than it was in the earlier ones of modern military history if the former are as we have depicted them a real struggle of forces to the utmost then the sum total of all these forces of the physical as well as the moral must decide more than certain special dispositions or mere chance a single fault committed may be repaired next time from good fortune and chance we can hope for more favour on another occasion but the sum total of moral and physical powers cannot be so quickly altered and therefore what the award of a victory has decided appears of much greater importance for all futurity very probably of all concerned in battles whether in or out of the army very few have given a thought to this difference but the course of a battle itself impresses on the minds of all present in it such a conviction and the relation of this course in public documents however much it may be coloured by twisting particular circumstances shows also more or less to the world at large that the causes were more of a general than a particular nature he who has not been present at the loss of a great battle will have difficulty in forming for himself a living or quite true idea of it and the abstract notions of this or that small untoward affair will never come up to the perfect conception of a lost battle let us stop a moment at the picture the first thing which overpowers the imagination and we may indeed say also the understanding is the diminution of the masses then the loss of ground which takes place always more or less and therefore on the side of the assailant also if he is not fortunate then the rupture of the original formation the jumbling together of the troops the risks of retreat which with few exceptions may always be seen sometimes in a less sometimes in a greater degree next the retreat the most part of which commences at night or at least goes on throughout the night 
on this first march we must at once leave behind a number of men completely worn out and scattered about often just the bravest who have been foremost in the fight who have held out the longest the feeling of being conquered which only sees the superior officers on the battlefield now spreads through all ranks even down to the common soldiers aggravated by the horrible idea of being obliged to leave in the enemy's hands so many brave comrades who but a moment since were of such value to us in the battle and aggravated by a rising distrust of the chief to whom more or less every subordinate attributes as a fault the fruitless efforts he has made and this feeling of being conquered is no ideal picture over which one might become master it is an evident truth that the enemy is superior to us a truth of which the causes might have been so latent before that they were not to be discovered but which in the issue comes out clear and palpable or which was also perhaps before suspected but which in the want of any certainty we had to oppose by the hope of chance reliance on good fortune providence or a bold attitude now all this has proved insufficient and the bitter truth meets us harsh and imperious all these feelings are widely different from a panic which in an army fortified by military virtue never and in any other only exceptionally follows the loss of a battle they must arise even in the best of armies and although long habituation to war and victory together with great confidence in a commander may modify them a little here and there they are never entirely wanting in the first moment they are not the pure consequences of lost trophies they are usually lost at a later period and the loss of them does not become generally known so quickly they will therefore not fail to appear even when the scale turns in the slowest and most gradual manner and they constitute that effect of a victory upon which we can always count in every case we have already said that the number of trophies intensifies this effect it is evident that an army in this condition looked at as an instrument is weakened how can we expect that when reduced to such a degree that as we said before it finds new enemies in all the ordinary difficulties of making war it will be able to recover by fresh efforts what has been lost before the battle there was a real or assumed equilibrium between the two sides this is lost and therefore some external assistance is requisite to restore it every new effort without such external support can only lead to fresh losses thus therefore the most moderate victory of the chief army must tend to cause a constant sinking of the scale on the opponent's side until new external circumstances bring about a change if these are not near if the conqueror is an eager opponent who thirsting for glory pursues great aims then a first-rate commander and in the beaten army a true military spirit hardened by many campaigns are required in order to stop the swollen stream of prosperity from bursting all bounds and to moderate its course by small but reiterated acts of resistance until the force of victory has spent itself at the goal of its career and now as to the effect of defeat beyond the army upon the nation and government it is the sudden collapse of hopes stretched to the utmost the downfall of all self-reliance in place of these extinct forces fear with its destructive properties of expansion rushes into the vacuum left and completes the prostration it is a very real shock upon the nerves which one of the two athletes receives from the electric spark of victory and that effect 
however different in degrees, is never completely wanting. Instead of everyone hastening with a spirit of determination to aid in repairing the disaster, everyone fears that his efforts will only be in vain, and stops, hesitating with himself, when he should rush forward, or, in despondency, he lets his arm drop, leaving everything to fate. The consequence which this effective victory brings forth in the course of the war itself depend in part on the character and talent of the victorious general, but more on the circumstances from which the victory proceeds and to which it leads. Without boldness and an enterprising spirit on the part of the leader, the most brilliant victory will lead to no great success, and its force exhausts itself all the sooner on circumstances if these offer a strong and stubborn opposition to it. How very different from down Frederick the Great would have used the victory at Cullen, and what different consequences France, in place of Prussia, might have given a battle of Luthen. The conditions which allow us to expect great results from a great victory we shall learn when we come to the subjects with which they are connected. Then it will be possible to explain the disproportion which appears at first sight between the magnitude of the victory and its results, and which is only too readily attributed to a want of energy on the part of the conqueror. Here, where we have to do with the great battle in itself, we shall merely say that the effects now depicted never fail to attend a victory, that they mount up with the intensive strength of the victory, mount up more the more the whole strength of the army has been concentrated in it, the more the whole military power of the nation is contained in that army, and the state in that military power. But then the question may be asked, can theory accept this effect of victory as absolutely necessary? Must it not rather endeavour to find out counteracting means capable of neutralising these effects? It seems quite natural to answer this question in the affirmative, but heaven defend us from taking that wrong course of most theorists, out of which is begotten a mutually devouring pro et contra. Certainly that effect is perfectly necessary, for it has its foundation in the nature of things, and it exists even if we find a means to struggle against it. Just as the motion of a cannonball is always in the direction of the terrestrial, although when fired from east to west, part of the general velocity is destroyed by this opposite motion. All war supposes human weakness, and against that it is directed. Therefore, if hereafter in another place we examine what is to be done after the loss of a great battle, if we bring under review the resources which still remain, even in the most desperate cases, if we should express a belief in the possibility of retrieving all, even in such a case it must not be supposed we mean thereby that the effects of such a defeat can, by degrees, be completely wiped out, for the forces and means used to repair the disaster might have been applied to the realisation of some positive object, and this applies both to the moral and physical forces. Another question is whether, through the loss of a great battle, forces are not perhaps roused into existence which otherwise would never have come to life. This case is certainly conceivable, and it is what has actually occurred with many nations. But to produce this intensified reaction is beyond the province of military art, which can only take account of it where it might be assumed as a possibility. If there are cases in which the fruits of a victory appear rather of a destructive nature in consequence of the reaction of the forces which had had the effect of rousing into activity, cases which certainly are very exceptional, then it must the more surely be granted that there is a difference in the effects which one and the same victory may produce according to the character of the people or state which has been conquered. End of Book 4, Chapter 10
Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.